Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI, the most trusted voice in healthcare, committed to advancing effective, evidence-based care. I'm your host, Paul Anderson. Tens of thousands of healthcare leaders rely on us as an independent, trusted authority to improve the safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness of care across all healthcare settings worldwide. You can learn more about our unique capabilities to improve outcomes at www.ecri.org. This episode is part of a special series we're producing as part of the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. You can find more podcasts and other free resources on the ECRI website in our COVID-19 Response Center. We're recording this podcast from our respective home offices as we practice and uh, encourage all of you to practice good social distancing. Today, we're talking about the need for patients to still seek and receive medical care that's not related to the pandemic and how providers can communicate to patients to encourage that care, along with any changes to routine practice that patients should expect. To get us started, I'll ask our guest to introduce herself. Thank you, Paul. Hello, everyone. My name is Jennifer Comerford. My clinical background is in occupational therapy and I've been a patient safety and risk analyst at ECRI for the past five years. So, you know, Jennifer, a lot of us suspected from the beginning of the pandemic that patients might avoid uh, both emergency and routine care out of fear of exposure to COVID. And now we have some preliminary survey data that says that this fear is actually pretty well founded. Uh, What do we know so far? Yes, Paul, exactly correct. We had some early conversations about this and we now are seeing an increasing number of reports showing similar information um, really across a broad range of patients, young to old, as well as the spectrum of well care to emergency and care for the very, very ill. In early May, on May 11th, New York City's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene reported on quote-unquote excess mortality um, in New York City beginning around March 11th, continuing until the very beginning of May. And so that excess mortality is excess deaths above expected seasonal baseline levels, regardless of the reported cause of death. So you might be thinking, New York City, mid-March to early May 2020, of course there were excess deaths because New York City was the epicenter of COVID-19 in our country. So true, but uh, accounting for the additional 24,000 plus people who died in the city during that time period, only 57% of them had lab-confirmed COVID, 21% of them had probable COVID-associated deaths. Bottom line, that was more than 5,000 excess deaths that were not identified as either laboratory-confirmed or probable COVID-19-associated deaths. Uh, So the thought is that those deaths might have been directly or indirectly attributed to the pandemic. And the researchers noted that social distancing practices demand on hospitals and healthcare providers and public fear all potentially led to delays in seeking or obtaining life-saving care. Uh, so that was, that was an interesting chunk of information, I think particularly given the 
time period, the location, and that significant number of patients where no one could draw a connection from the pathogen being inside the patient's body. Um, so if I, if I could just interrupt you, just to make sure I, I've got that, Jennifer, what I, what I think I heard you say was all deaths in the city in that time, regardless of where the death took place, mm -hmm. right? So hospital deaths, nursing home deaths, home deaths, all Correct. of that. We had about 24,000 more than expected, you know, in a, in a quote unquote normal year. Yes. And something like 5,000 of those were not either directly attributed to a COVID diagnosis or a likely COVID diagnosis. That is correct. You got all that's of that a, correct. That's a big chunk. That's a lot of people. It was in excess of 5,000 people. Yes. Yeah. Now, around the same time, Paul, a report by a financial analytics firm that does a lot of work in the healthcare industry looked at over 2 million visits, so care that did happen, to 228 facilities in 40 states. So most of the country, and again, this is, this is looking at claims, billing, things like that, a different way to look at healthcare delivered or not, uh, found an average decrease of more than 54% in the number of unique patients seeking hospital care for any reason at all across the country. And I think what is most telling about this is that it, their findings included a significant decline in access to care for patients with life-threatening conditions, such as congestive heart failure, heart attacks, and stroke. So then- so that that's oh, including people who, who sought hospital care for COVID. They're, they're in that cohort. Yeah, okay. Ab absolutely. Mm -hmm. that's, that's correct. And really, I would say bringing this all to a very even more specific point and just confirming these, these earlier seeds, sort of like one report after another is finding very, very similar things. Uh, on May 19th, there was a letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine discussing data from Kaiser Permanente. Uh, you may know that they're located in Northern California. They're a large integrated care delivery system. Um, so they've got hospitals, they've got clinics, uh, and they provide medical care for an awful lot of the patients in that re region. So they noted weekly rates of hospitalization for heart attacks decreased by up to 48% during the COVID-19 period. So you keep kind of hearing these numbers that are around 50% of essentially heart attacks that are not coming to the hospital. And, and there's nobody who really thinks seriously that there are 50% fewer heart attacks happening in the country all of a sudden. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, on the one hand, I, I guess it kind of makes sense that when people hear a lot of warnings to stay home, avoid unnecessary trips, right? I mean, uh, around me, you see it on, um, you know, on road signs, you hear it in, and you get it in paper mail and you hear it on the radio and TV, that some people might decide that some kind of care is quote unquote unnecessary, or they might decide that however sick they are, getting COVID would be worse because we've heard mm -hmm. about you know, the really awful, you know, symptoms and, 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 and sort of progression that COVID can take. But obviously we know that sometimes the consequences of skipping care, right? I'm thinking of a heart attack, a stroke, something like that. If you skip care for that, that can be really catastrophic in its own right. 
Absolutely. What are some scenarios, you know, where we know that this might happen? Sure. So, I mean, uh, quite unfortunately, we've, we've got reports. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Adventist Health Lodi Memorial, their 150-bed community hospital in California's Central Valley, reported record low emergency department volume, beginning with the first reported case of coronavirus in their county and becoming more significant with this um, advent of the statewide shelter in place order. So this hospital's EMS providers noted, and again, here comes this range of numbers again, noted a 45% increase of cardiac arrests in the field. Uh, researchers suggest that indicates that patients were waiting too long to seek care. Um, mm. This is really interesting. They also noted that every single stroke patient who arrived to their hospital in that month-long period of their study arrived too late to receive tissue plasminogen activator or TPA as we mostly know it. That's the clot buster used to restore blood flow to the brain. So this is a hospital that typically administers TPA once or twice a week and they did not administer it, it at all in the month of March. Our listeners are probably familiar with the concept that time lost is brain tissue lost. Uh, just in case anyone is not familiar with TPA, there is only a very short window of hours during which it can be administered after the initial onset of stroke symptoms. Um, once you are out of that few hour window, there is just no chance that it will work and it can't be administered. So it represents a valuable and fleeting chance to prevent or reduce lasting damage and disability from a stroke. Um, I have also heard several other reports um, surrounding gastrointestinal sy symptoms. Uh, a patient whose appendix burst at home. Another mm. patient who experienced a bowel perforation after being in pain for three weeks at home. Um, I think between messaging about sheltering in place and staying at home and social distancing. Um, I, I think that alone could be enough to do it. I think in combination with uh, perhaps lower health literacy than might be helpful, I think it could be the perfect storm. Yeah, I mean, I can even just, you know, share personal anecdotes. You know, I know a, a person who uh, I was talking to who had to talk his father into going to seek care after his, his father, who was in his you know mid-70s, uh, hit his head. Oh. Uh, you know, and uh, fortunately he did go seek care. He's fine. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it's just that kind of thing. The father said, well, I, I'm, yeah, I'm a little dizzy, but I'm fine. <laughs> I don't want to get COVID. He had other risk factors for COVID. And, and you know, the, my friend, the son, had to talk his father into saying, yeah, okay, but head injuries are nothing to mess around with. This isn't you scraped your knee. Right. right. <laughs> you know, this, yeah. So, so what role do provider organizations, whether they're, you know, big health systems or individual physician practice, uh, what role do they have in encouraging patients to continue to seek care? And, and how can they do this effectively? Sure. So I really do think regardless of the size of the organization, uh, they've got to get the message out that medical emergencies don't stop for social distancing, for staying at home, for sheltering in place. And that no matter how scared a patient might be of potential exposure to coronavirus, a medical emergency still warrants quick 
medical attention. Uh, there's, there's just no getting around that. Uh, I, I think to get a little more specific, organizations and providers need to educate patients on the signs and symptoms of emergencies and what to do if they or a loved one experience them. Uh, depending on the medical specialty, you know, that could really get sort of nitty gritty for patients who might be at increased risk of experiencing a medical emergency to begin with, as well as being in an increased risk group if they contracted coronavirus. I think perhaps like the situation mm. that you were talking about personally, uh, they mm -hmm. might need to get a little bit nuanced about it. Um, and, you know, something else that I think all hospitals and providers can do, need to do. I would say in my own personal life, I've been on the receiving end of some of this done well, and I've also been on the end of waiting for communication that hasn't come. I think we really need to help people understand all of the things that the organization or practice is doing to help keep patients and staff safe. You know, people, people understandably have a lot of fear right this second. And I think information, accurate, timely, trustworthy information is really the best antidote to that. Yeah. And, you know, Jennifer, you and I have, have talked a lot about it, and I know you've thought a lot about, um, you know, the kinds of communication that providers need to make sure they're having with their patients and with their communities uh, at large. Uh, can you share some examples of some of the things we've, we've talked about and some of the things that I know have been on your mind as as things that we really need to encourage providers to, to undertake. Uh, absolutely, Paul. A variety of outreach with some pretty targeted messages for your patient population. Consider email blitzes, social media campaigns, updates to websites, snail mailings, robocalls can all be very effective ways to reach your patients. And you know, I think now is a time when people are very interested in knowing what their local hospital system or what their provider's practice has to say, even if they don't have a, a particular current need. Uh, I think it's really beginning to dawn on people that this has not moved quickly and that a lot of things as we knew them are fundamentally changed. And so I, I think really getting yourself in front of your patients um, all these different ways. And, and of course, thinking about joining up social media campaigns with other resources that are already out there. Um, you know, mostly a conversation for you and I another time, Paul, but there's definitely been a decrease in childhood vaccinations surrounding this whole time period. That's another problem, uh, but something that providers can do is look to CDC's social, social media messaging on that and um, find some good resources that way. You know, you said you mentioned a moment ago, Jennifer, in your answer about just this need for, for you know, clear and unambiguous. I think uh, I mean, that's my word now, but but this very clear communication from the providers to the communities and to their patients. And one of the things I've heard, you know, from folks not in the healthcare industry is, boy, you know, it feels like the story keeps changing about you know what we should do: wear a mask, don't wear a mask, wear a mask. Um, uh, or what we know or don't know about the virus itself. It keeps changing. And, um, you know, my answer to that is, well, we're learning a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we don't know. We know more now than we did in March. And, and we're recording this in early June, presumably by the middle of, of, you know, July or August, we'll know more then than we do now. Um, but, but maybe, I don't know if you've got any thoughts about how providers can include in their communication 
both an acknowledgement that we don't know everything <laughs> um, without, I, I think there's a fear sometimes that they will undermine themselves if they acknowledge that they don't know everything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I wonder if there's a way to sort of thread that needle of you know, saying what you do know, uh, acknowledging what is our best best advice based on the information available at the time, and and acknowledging this could change as we learn more. Uh, you know, absolutely. I I certainly I would say that that a, a, a provider's fear surrounding that uh, I would say is understandable. But I, I also think it's workable. Uh, you know, those of us who do have the privilege of being at the sharp end of patient care or further back, but supporting those sharp end providers, you know, I think we've got uh, a tremendous responsibility to continue learning. Uh, we really all are learning on a daily basis and a weekly basis. And it's remarkable what we know now that we did not know a month ago, six weeks ago, eight weeks ago. Um, that's, I think that's, that's the thing with the novel germ. Uh, so I'd, if I were the provider, if it were my practice, you know, I would think that the transparency surrounding how much we're still learning would be very important. Uh, you know, I, I think that I would acknowledge that not much differently than you said, this is a new germ. Uh, you know, researchers are studying every day. We are learning every day more about this germ. And so the information we have to share and even the recommendations that we make will probably continue to change from time to time. But I, as your provider, pledge to you what I always have and I always will, and that's that I'll share everything that I know with you and work with you to make the best possible plan for your care, even as things change. So let's let's wrap up with this then. Uh, where do we start? Uh, I'm not sure that we can say that one thing is more important than another, but what's a reasonable starting point um, to make sure that, you know, if I'm, as we said, any kind of provider, to make sure that I'm getting the message out, you know, as effectively as possible? Sure. Sure, absolutely. You know, I really think you need to ask yourself, has our organization or my practice addressed this at all? Um, if yes, have we started to see results such as increasing visit volume or at least calls, visits, admissions for emergency conditions that, that reflect that people are heeding the message. Again, thinking back to that uh, study in California, they literally knew that they were only seeing 45% of their heart attack volume. They literally knew that they usually administer TPA one or two times a week, and they had not administered it in a month. So, you know, if, if you've done that messaging, I hope that your metrics are talking back to you and that it's been effective. Um, but I do think from what we are seeing and hearing in the research and in our own lives and communities anecdotally is that a lot of organizations and providers have not even really undertaken this messaging. Uh, and so if you've not, take a look at your patient communication plan. What is the most efficient and effective way that you've got to communicate with your patients? Is it a text blitz? Um, do you, are you in a small community and do you have a great contact in local media? 
If so, maybe you want to start there. Um, but, you know, in any event, we do also have a plan for communication with patients in the event of a disaster that looks at many different methods for communication. So you could look at that on our website. I think really thinking about your patient population and how historically you've best been able to communicate with them, as well as what you've learned about what's changed. So much changed on a dime for all of us uh, as the pandemic came closer and closer to our local communities. So you may have new insights as well, um, but you need to get that communication out there. Great, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Learn more about how ECRI can help from our website at www.ecri.org where you'll find our COVID-19 Resource Center with publicly available resources to help providers across the continuum of care. Tools with sample communication scripts for physician practices are also available for ECRI members. Be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to get our latest episodes. We welcome your feedback. Please visit us at ecri.org podcasts or email us at ecri-podcasts at ecri.org.